Okay, if you would please turn to 1 John chapter 3. <coughs> we have arrived at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, and by the Spirit whom He has given us. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, true, and penetrating Word. Father, may You, in Your mercy, in Your saving and sanctifying grace, cause this Word that we have read to be implanted deeply within our souls within our minds, within our hearts, within our convictions and consciences. May You do this for the grace of Your preserving us. The grace that will cause us to persevere to the end and inherit the future kingdom of Christ. And so to that end, I ask that you help me say what the text says, to unfold it, to repeat it, to say it in other words, to help point the people to the text and see what it says, to the glory of your name. Amen. Okay. You know, for, for those of us church-going, professing Christian people who take God seriously, take truth seriously, sin, the future judgment day seriously. What, for those of us like that, what is more important personally than to know that I am of God. In other words, that I am born again. That I have eternal life. These are John's words. I'm born of God. That, that I am one of those who is being saved by Jesus Christ. Is there anything more important in our daily walk? you look at verse 19. John says to us, 
By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. Okay. Huge question. What does that phrase, by this, refer to? In other words, by what are we to come to the personal knowledge that I'm of Jesus, I'm true, I'm real, I'm safe. By what? What is the by this? The this, that pronoun, refers backwards to what he had just previously said. Its antecedent is verse 18. By verse 18 happening, that is how we know we are saved. That we are of God. That we are of the truth. And by that is how we maintain an assurance of salvation. We reassure our heart before Him. By what? Verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, meaning merely, but in deed and in truth. Probably by truth here he means genuinely. I mean, you really love people. You feel it. You have affection. It's growing in you by what you do, and it's genuine. By that, that's how you know that you're of the truth. That's how you are maintaining and gaining assurance. You reassure our heart before God. Yes, I'm true. Here's John repeating himself again. I mean, these two things, these recurring themes are throughout the letter. One, his concern for our personal assurance of salvation that we're saved. The second theme that's flowing throughout is our loving other persons who are in Jesus. Caring genuinely and acting upon it. And those two things, our assurance and our loving others to John are so vitally connected throughout this letter. You can't separate them for him. So here's a summary that we've seen so far, and I'm going to actually jump forward to summarize it. See, the first connection between our assurance and our loving others is like what he said in chapter 4, verse 19. We love, he means horizontally here, other persons, we love because he first loved us. So that's how John's connecting them. He's saying, this love I'm talking about is impossible unless you are personally loved by God. Defined by John in this letter, unless he has come and we saw, raised you spiritually from the dead, brought you from death to life. 
which all points back to He loved you in Jesus Christ who died for your sins and purchased your entirety of salvation. And then it's come to fruition in your life by your conversion. Do you get it? He's awakened you. He's loved you. And then you hear and you listen to the apostles. And you listen to Christ and you hear the gospel and your assurance, oh, He really does love me. Because that's what faith is. You believe the truth. He really has my welfare for eternity at his heart. He cares. And so for John, he first loved you is the key to loving others because being persuaded through the gospel of Jesus Christ that God loves you, not just for time, but for eternity is what frees us from that constant, debilitating selfishness and sinful compulsion to use other people as means to our end. Because if this life is all there is, we will constantly, and we might cover it real well, but be driven. How can I be happy now, right now, how can that person be that means? The idea that I will spend and be spent when I only got so much of life left here for others is really threatening. So it is God who first loved us. That reality is the ongoing power and strength pulled away from our natural sinful inclinations to not act out in sacrificial love to others. I mean, think about it. You, you, you go to a, an unbelieving financial counselor. And he says, boy, you're unprepared for the future retirement. And he finds out you've been giving 10% for 30 years to your church. What are you doing? Do you know what compound interest would have done if you would have put that in a, an IRA? It's natural thinking. And it is, in a sense, crazy. But because He first loved us, and we know that there's so much more beyond this life, that's what frees a believer to say, I can be spent in loving. Others, And you can just take it from your time, your talents, the energy. How do I love that person whose personality bugs me? We can be empowered by the truth. Because He loves us, therefore, we can love. So that's one side of the coin. Here, this is the Christian life in a, in a whole. Here's this circular thing that keeps going around then in our life. We are empowered by vertical, going to Him, and then... In our text, we see the second thing, the way our assurance is connected to loving others. When we find, I am empowered, and I've acted out in love, and I'm loving better now, that actual experience of loving better, the text says, strengthens our assurance. The evidence is there, I'm real. So in other words, John has been arguing that loving another indeed and genuinely is the concrete evidence that we are of the truth and thus we reassure our heart before God that I'm real. I'm really saved. 
My faith is real. I'm sinful. I'm broken. I'm so imperfect. But it's real. And the more I experience the evidences, the more that strengthens that assurance. Now, on the other side of that is when we are habitually failing to love the brothers, then any assurance that we had is more and more called into question. Okay? That's an introduction. That's kind of where we've been, and that's at the core of the beginning of this text. In other words, that's the issue that John is dealing with here in this passage. So remember, a few weeks back, when we are in the prior paragraph, verses 11 to 18, summed up, John had just said to us, love for the brothers and sisters in Christ is the evidence, or is uncrucial evidence, that one is born of God, one knows God, and one's un- of the truth. So now, I just want to just quickly see the connection, verse 18 now, into verse 19 of our passage. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And we shall be reassure our heart before Him. So he says, love, love, love for your assurance that you are being saved. Reassure your heart before your Father. Okay, now, here's the question. What happens if for this period of time, this period of time, whatever, what happens for this day I'm living, or this week I'm living, What happens when that evidence is lacking? The answer is in the next verse. Verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. John's answer. So now, oh, I'm having a bad week. Haven't been drawing close to the Father prayerfully and humbly. My heart's been, heart has been calloused. Been rejecting numbers of opportunities to obey Him in love of others. And I haven't. John says, what happens is this. Our heart as believers will condemn us. That's what happens. Now, now that word condemn us is, is the word katagonoske. It's two words put together. It's a compound word. Gnoske is the word for knowledge or to know. Kata is a preposition which means against. He, so essentially he's saying, when I'm not loving, I'm disobeying, I'm a believer, and look, I'm in disobedience, what happens is our heart knows something against us. That's what he says happens. In other words, our conscience is aware that there's a contradiction between what we say we believe about Jesus and how we are treating others 
who are in Jesus. He, he's saying that this condemning, this, this awareness internally, we know, this awareness of that contradiction produces an uneasiness in us. A sense of gloom. A gnawing at the core of our being. We know we're guilty. We, we know we're sinning. Every genuine believer in here knows exactly that experience. As long as you've been a Christian for at least a week, you know it. This is the Christian experience. Now, I don't know what Bible version translation. I think most of you have an ESV, but I'm going to have to spend a few minutes for right now talking about verse 20. Because verse 20 so far in this journey through 1 John is by far the most difficult verse to decipher from the original. From what John wrote in Greek. Because this verse is really grammatically complex and the original the Greek into our receptive language English could be taken a couple different ways and has been so let me I'm going to give you an example about how the New American Standard Bible which is a great translation and, and how the NIV how those scholars and that committee interpreted what John wrote in verse 20 very differently than the ESV or the King James Version, for instance. So, the New American Standard translates verse 20 like this. Now try to hang with me, okay? Here it is. We shall assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The NIV, which is a paraphrase, paraphrases it this way. We set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Okay. There's the interpretation they give. I think that interpretation is not what John means. I think it misses his point. When they begin and start translating verse 20 with in whatever our heart condemns us or whenever our heart condemns us, we are reassured. When, when they do that, I don't think it's a valid translation. I think they miss it. Okay. In other words, by their translation, they are taking verses 19 and 20 essentially to mean something like this. That even though, Christian, our hearts we may condemn us for failing to love others in deed and in truth, we were wrong and we got this condemning, gnawing feeling in us. Even though that's true, yet God's greater than our heart and He knows all things. God knows much more than our heart does. 
And if our heart is consumed with failure, God knows all the positives as well. Things are not as bad as they seem. Therefore, go ahead and be reassured. That's what their translation seems to be getting at. In other words, your heart may be at ease, even though it condemns you as unloving. And it's going to be at ease because God is greater than your heart. Maybe something like, God is much more merciful towards you than you are towards yourself. He's much more merciful towards you in reality than your conscience is towards you. Okay, that's one option. I don't think it is what John is saying. But if you, a good translation is what many of you have right in front of you. Uh, verse 20, ESV. No, 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 no. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows all things. In other words, the King James Version or the ESV come the closest, in my opinion, to what not adding a bunch of other thoughts that aren't there in the text. And they translate it more woodenly or more literally from the Greek. Now, I, don't have, I can't sit here on a Sunday morning and, and have a Greek seminary class to show you why I come to that conclusion. If you want me to do it after, I'd be happy to. But here, here's, here's the gist. Here, here's the way I understand verses 19 and 20. By this, that, that is by obeying God's command to love one another, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before Him. Because if our heart condemns us, it is because God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Okay. Meaning, let me say it in other words, the reason we must love one another and thereby reassure our hearts before God that we are of the truth, the reason is this. If our heart condemns us for a lack of love, it is because God, who is bigger than our hearts, is the one bringing the conviction. In other words, our conscience as believers is an echo of God's opinion of our actions right now that need to turn or need repentance. Okay, does that make you go sense? Okay, good. So, if I'm right there, that does bring up, I think, another problem. Oh, okay. I just, is my conscience always purely the work of God? It gets a little tricky now, doesn't it? I mean, how do I know if I feel so much guilt that my conscience is actually echoing the Word of God or God's Spirit? as opposed to Satan's voice or my own flesh. 
This is an important question because Revelation 12.10 says Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night before our God. And just think about the ways that errant thinking or demonic powers or Satan can mess with our conscience. Right? Uh, for, for instance, on the one hand, he loves to help believers sear their conscience. To sear, you sear a steak, seal it in. If you did that with your hand, you seared your hand, it becomes very calloused and hardened. To sear is where I used to have a, a, a conscience that was soft and it was like, ooh, that's wrong, that's right. And to sear it is this, hmm, well, what I used to think was wrong ain't so wrong any more. My conscience doesn't bother me. He loves to help professing believers through all kinds of means, through bad theology or through practice. Have a quiet, peaceful conscience. Even as you live in darkness. John's term. Even as you walk, not in the light, but according to the darkness. Even as you unrepentantly Continue to sin. Even as you disregard forgiving, loving others. He loves to help people have a peaceful conscience. But Paul writes it this way in 1 Timothy 4, 1-2. The Holy Spirit expressly says that in Later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings. This is where teachings in the church that get the gospel so wrong or the Christian life so wrong become so dangerous. Paul calls them, that's Satan's word, teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Right? And, and we all know that the more that one practices disobedience to God's commands, the more that one fudges on convictions that you have or that you once had, the more that one practices sin, the easier and easier and easier it gets. It's like the frog, put him, don't put him in hot water, just put him in warm water and slowly heat it up. Don't even know he's dying. You practice and the more indifferent you become to any convictions, to any gnawing at the hardness of one's heart. So, Okay, this gets a little tricky then, doesn't it? Because our conscience is a guide. The text is clear, but careful. Careful that, ah, my conscience doesn't condemn me at all. Careful it's not because you're being led astray by Satan and the lust of your flesh and the practice of sin. Now, on the other hand, well, some people, Satan just can't get at that way. No way. So then he'll be more than happy. Let's go the other way. He'll just heap debilitating, condemning thoughts upon you that are beyond Scripture and are Christianly and biblically 
wrong expectations. He'll love to do that in such a way that he turns as you fight with sin and you have a conscience that is very sensitive to your sin. And he'll love to take it. Well, that, well, I, can't, I can't sear that person's conscience, but we can slowly get them to be so self-worshipful that we'll turn that person away from the core and the truth of the gospel as they fight sin. We'll, we'll keep turning them further away from the imputation of Jesus' righteousness to their account, not their own. Will turn them more and more away to the center of Jesus' propitiatory sacrifice where their sins, all of them, were paid for. He loves to take believers down that legalistic, sinful, self-righteous road. And then he'll help. He'll paint a picture of God as some dysfunctional, impatient Fly off the handle type type of type of dad who's just waiting to pounce on you as soon as you mess up. So there's ways in which our conscience is not necessarily the Holy Spirit. Let me just summarize this for a minute. I think within the church world, there's three types of persons. One, those whose consciences are seared. They're living in unrepentant, habitual sin doesn't bother them. Secondly, there are those, they're not like that, but they're leaning away from the core of the gospel too. Legalism. To the view that God is some brutal taskmaster just waiting to pounce upon them and so they better be good today. At the core, they will never say it, but at the core in the way they're living is they feel it's their duty to not really believe 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. If we confess them, period. Well, that, that means that there's a heart there that says, I know I've sinned. I love the cross. That's why you're faithful through Jesus. And that's it. Adding nothing to it. It doesn't need your good works added to it to forgive you. You're going to flip it around backwards. He needs a heart that repents and it's done. And now the power of grace will bring about the fruit of repentance in your life. But it's the constant forgiveness that comes first. Well, so that's legalism. That's the second one. And then there's the third kind of person and those are those who are living the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit which means in other words their conscience is lively it's very sensitive but it is a 
attuned to God, not as a taskmaster, but as their Father through Jesus Christ. God who is perfectly holy. And as we heard in our scripture reading, Psalm 145 today, who is compassionate, who is slow to anger, and is flowing constantly towards His children with mercy from the cross. That conscience constantly feels that in their sin. And so as the believer feels it, oh, I'm not loving as I ought, their conscience condemns them. And that's a holy thing. Because God hates sin. The cross never said God doesn't uh, hate sin anymore. It means He's put away your judicial guilt and He's working on you experientially now. And He will perfect you in the resurrection then. But He hates sin. And He hates it when we, His children, sin. But so that condemning conscience then leads us believers to thank God for it. Thank you for my active conscience here. It's condemning me. It tells me something's wrong. I need to move, change here. That's the Christian life. Now, let me give you an illustration. It's the conscience in the soul is, is analogous to the nerve endings in our physical body. If there's something wrong with your brain and the nerve endings aren't getting to your brain, a child can put the hand on the stove fire and just let it sit there until his hand burns away. But when the nerve endings, the conscience is working, that's why we go, ow! For safety. That's the condemning conscience and the work of the Spirit and the work of the Word in the Christian's life. Wow, I, I did put my actions in my heart towards the fire of sin and disobedience and it pulled away. And so the conscience causes the believer as they're walking in the Word and the Spirit, it brings them again and again to prayerful confession and trust in this glorious Gospel where they glorify Christ as they intimately pray to their Father. 1 John 1.9 And if there's particular persons that they have sinned against and they say, forgive me please, I have sinned against you. And then, their conscience is quieted for another ten minutes or five days. It's gone. And we move on. We have confidence again because it's in the Gospel. It's not in us. It's in Christ, not in us. That, there's a sense in which... What, I th what I've been saying is just that is at the core of the basic Christian walk. This is it. You know, in, in Paul's great letter to the Galatian churches, because of error that was attacking theologically the core of the gospel, 
Galatians at its core is about justification by faith alone. And now, as he comes to the end of that letter, Paul, like John, sums the Christian life up the same essential way. By, by saying this in chapter 5, look, all of these kind of legalistic things, you keep looking outside it, you're going to add something to Jesus' work that's going to make God accept. You got it so wrong. Here's the response to the gospel ongoingly throughout your life. It, it is just one thing. See, all the other stuff adds up, means nothing. Therefore, what means everything is faith. Working itself out. It's a middle voice in the Greek. Meaning working, faith, working itself out in loving others. Galatians 5.6 not, not some other kind of faith, but saving, genuine faith which works itself out in loving others. That's why John will go on to say in verse 20 of chapter 4, if anyone says, I love God, I'm a Christian, and hates other Christians, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Pursue assurance. Pursue assurance by loving the brothers and the sisters. And here's your experience. Your heart will condemn you when you're failing to do as you ought. That's a grace of God. And so you take that and you turn again and again and again and again and pursue loving others. Now, here's a question. I want you to look down at verse 22. And the question will go like this. Does verse 22 cause you a theological problem? says, and whatever we ask, let me, you know what, let me start with verse 21 first. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, okay, heart condemned, you come to repentance, now, oh, you got a heart that's not condemning you now? Then we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. I love it. You should see the faces that look at me. And I just quoted the translation here, okay? The faces kind of went like this. So that's good. So if your theology doesn't fit the text, change your theology to the text, okay? Not the other way around. John is revealing what is true here for born-again persons whose hearts are free in Christ. 
See, if you're truly a Christian, there, there should be an internal sense of guilt when it's appropriate gnawing at you when you sin. When you refuse to obey God. When you refuse to love your brothers as you ought. And that leads to repentance. Back to where our hearts now don't condemn us. But to an intimacy with the Father. If we confess our sins, He's faithful. That's the Christian life. Now, notice in verse 21, the word confidence for John, the word confidence here, for God, is the opposite of our hearts condemning us. If our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. So you see that? Now that confidence there towards God, for John, is connected to our obedience to God's commandments. See it? Because we keep His commandments and do what, he, what pleases Him. Now, I think John could have listed starting with the Ten Commandments there. He could have listed them. But, he instead summed them up into one commandment in verse 23. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as Jesus commanded us. I like to pride myself on, um, I like to pay attention to grammar, but that sounds like two commandments. And there's a conjunction there with the word and. Okay. John's not stupid. He, he knows what he's doing. And so it just tells me that John's point is clear. That faith in Jesus. Let me use the same thing that what faith means because sometimes faith means nothing because it's so trusting in Jesus. His, who He is as Savior, what He did, what He promises, and what He commands. Trusting Him vertically for John. And with that, loving others who are trusting Him called in the body of Christ. For John, those are so necessarily connected that one cannot exist without the other for very long. So to him, it's the one commandment. Summed up. And that's the same point John has been making paragraph after paragraph after paragraph in this letter. Now, so here's that question. Does verse 22 cause you a theological problem? He says God will give what we ask on the condition that we keep His commands and please Him. Do you have a problem with that?
is John teaching that we have to earn answered prayer. Is John teaching that we have to merit by our actions? Got to merit something as we pray now. God will give it because I've earned it. Is that what he's teaching? Isn't everything that God gives of mercy? Isn't it all of grace if he gives? And I thought mercy or grace was unconditional. You know how lots of us Christians talk? All right. In the Bible, there is a huge difference between unconditional and unmerited. They're not the same. Something could be conditional, but not merited. Let me give you an example. Bible quote. We are justified. Okay, let me stop. That's huge, okay? Because that really at the core is we are saved from our sin and from judgment day into Jesus forever. Okay. God has put away all of our sin in Jesus and He has given us Jesus' perfect life to our account legally before Him. Okay? That's huge. How does that happen to any of you? We are justified by faith. That's the condition. But it's not merited. To say that, that, that there's an instrument of means here by faith that brings about justification is not to say that you've earned it. See, it's the difference between an employee obeying an employer versus a patient obeying a doctor. See, an employer, by definition, is needy. He has needs. So he goes outside to look, can you supply what I need? I'll make a contract with you. I'll pay you so much money an hour for you to do what I tell you to do. Okay. okay. So you're working. It's a job. At the end of the week, if he writes a check for $537 and says, you know what, I'm such a merciful person, I, I just feel, feel filled with grace, I'm going to give you a gift. Here's your gift of $527. If you have a judicial sentiment, you would be very angry. What are you talking about? It's no gift. You owe me. I earned that. Okay, got that? That's merited. Very different than the obedience that a patient shows towards a physician. Good thing we don't live 150 years ago. A lot of us would be dead. We have antibiotics now. Doctor says, this is a really, 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 really bad bacteria you got. 
It's going to kill you. But it doesn't have to kill you. Okay, watch. He's not needy. You're not working for him. He or she is working for you. That's why you go. You have what I need, doctor. Please, okay, diagnose me. You got it. And I'm going to write you a prescription. And this is what you need to go do. Do you want to be saved from imminent death? I'll save you. Go to the pharmacy. Hand this to them. Wait for them to give you the bottle. And take these pills, antibiotics, as directed, and you will be saved. If you come home and say, I just love my doctor so much. He's just fantastic. Why? Well, he, he told me how, how to get saved. Well, are you taking the pill? Well, no, I actually took that prescription through it in the trash can. But I really believe he's a great doctor. No, you're showing by your actions you really don't trust him. But because you went and you obeyed him, and you got the prescription, you started taking it, hey, look at that, I'm all well. Okay, did you earn anything? No, he didn't owe you anything. He was working for you. It was conditional, though. If you didn't take the antibiotics, you're dead. Okay, you see the difference? Yes. So, the point is this. The grace, and it is grace, it's not merited. The grace of answered prayer, like all other grace, all other mercy from God, it is utterly unmerited. But according to this verse, 22, it's not unconditional. That's what it says. It's the condition of keeping His commandments. Now, this is the only... Why? Because the essence of keeping the commandment of your physician is faith. Because you trust your physician. That's why you obey. Sometimes we have, might have had physicians we didn't trust and we didn't obey. But if you trust your physician, you obey. So obeying God's commandments at its core is the essence of faith. It's the essence of walking by faith. It's the essence of trusting Him as the great physician who has your welfare at heart in all that He commands you. In other words, obedience in the Christian life is never separated from walking in faith. If it is, it's legalism. Okay? And so, see, faith at its core is directly connected to obedience. That, see, it's so true that those who come to faith in Jesus, they are abiding in Christ by faith, aren't they? And God's abiding in them by faith. But John has no, pro- because of that, John has no problem just saying it a little bit differently, but he doesn't mean something at the core different. In verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in Him, and God in Him. 
See, most of us Christian people don't have any problem with seeing faith as a condition of answered prayer, but we do have a problem with seeing obedience to oh, oh, my actually loving other persons is a condition to answered prayer. But there really is no problem when you realize that genuine faith necessarily expresses itself in loving deeds. That love of brothers is the fruit of faith which receives grace from God. That's what John is saying. So, what's the practical take home? That's simply this. First, if you haven't believed, come to, cling to Jesus. Do it. This is His commandment that you believe in His only Son, Jesus Christ. Do it. Okay, now the Christian life, the practical take home is this. Believer, continue to build up your confidence Build the assurance of your salvation before God your Father in an intimate relationship by trusting His promises and His commands that they really are for your good. Okay. It's this circle. Sounds like Lion King. It's the circle of life. But no... During this mortal life, it is like this circle. Logically, first and foremost, every one of us is desperate to spend time with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before and with His written Word. Okay, why? Because His promises, we read them, we we meditate on them. We memorize them. The truth penetrates. Oh, my heart condemns me. We come to repentance and the Spirit works. And it, that is the ongoing key to be empowered to do the impossible and lay down your life. Love the other. Okay, so, so then, wait, but, but then that's not done. Now, now what happened? He, this is the whole text. Okay, look at that. I'm empowered today. I had good time with God. I got my heart right. Okay, now I have confidence before God and you, were, you found it easier to act out in love. And now what? That experience of acting out in love according to our text brings greater assurance. I'm real. And it's just, it goes round and round every day of your life. And so, as the cup and the bread will be passed out for all of us here if you're a baptized believer we're going to hold it and I'm going to have you close your eyes for a minute because I'm going to end by quoting our text again and this is what we're we're going to be doing is is we partake of the body and the blood to know that what we hear here this is what this lifestyle is what Jesus purchased. It's why 
Within 24 hours from that Last Supper, He was going to the cross that this may be realized in our lives. Close your eyes. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Father, may we taste the beauty, the beauty of the cross of Your Son. May we taste the tender, deeply caring and loving hand of Yours upon us this morning tomorrow and the next day. May we be drawn by Your Spirit as we'll come to the end of this text next week, Father. By Your Spirit who dwells within us, may we hear Him more clearly. May we press in and be drawn by Him more strongly towards You first and then towards others with the gospel, with truth, with practical love to the glory of your holy name.